0: Thursday, August 22nd, 2013. ready to go. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God. Now, if I had a dollar <laughs> for every time I've heard some major leader claim that they're receiving direct revelations from God, I you know I'd be a uh, filthy rich televangelist type. Uh you know you get this happening all the time and uh the idea is this is that scripture is not sufficient. Now a lot of people don't know this. A lot of people do not understand the religion of the Pharisees. If you were to uh go back in time and understand the entire system that puts the, that you know that put the Pharisaical system all together you would understand something very, very important as to how evil operates. And uh, and, and so kind of a quick history lesson. Now, uh, I learned what I'm about to teach you, at least this little portion of it, uh, from a a guy by the name of Nehemia Gordon. Nehemia Gordon is a Karahite Jew. And for lack of a better way of putting it, think of a Karahite Jew as not an Orthodox Jew – Because Orthodox Judaism is the modern-day extension of the Pharisaical religion. Think of it this way. In 70 AD, uh, when the the, uh, temple was destroyed, um, there was no ability for sacrifices anymore. And, of course, the whole sacrificial system came to a screeching halt. Who Who were the last people standing? It was not the Zadokim. That would be the Sadducees. Um, It was the Pharisees. They were the last people standing, and they literally concocted a brand-new Judaism that has nothing really that remotely in common with Old Testament Judaism. Now, there's another group of, uh, you know, kind of a minority group within Judaism called the Karahites, and think of them as Sola Scriptura folks. You know, they only go with what is in the written Torah. But one of the primary, primary, primary teachings of the Pharisees, and there's several of them, but one of the primary teachings of the Pharisees and Orthodox Judaism is not that there is one Torah, but there's two okay, and so what they teach and this you can find this in the uh in the uh, the by the way the uh the second Torah, which was called the oral Torah finally got written down in the Jerusalem and Babylonian Talmud. So it it did become a written uh, form. But the idea is this, is that, you know, you ask an Orthodox Jew, um, hey, you know, I've got the written Torah here, is that enough? No, it's not enough. And they would say something to the effect of, listen, Moses, you know, how long was he up there on that uh, mountain, on Mount Horeb? And you go, um, I th- if I don't know, forty days, yeah, yeah, right, forty days, and uh, don't you think God had a lot to tell him? Um, yeah, I'm sure he did. And did he come? Did he come down with, uh, you know, a lot of written stuff? Um, no, I in fact, I remembered two stone tablets, right. And so they would say, well, what that means is, is that there's a written Torah. Which is kind of the lesser thing. And then there's the oral Torah, this second stream of authoritative teaching. And you're going, you know, this oral Torah thing sounds very familiar if you're familiar with Roman Catholic uh, teachings. Um, Yeah, that's the idea. And so, um, you know, so what happens is in the Pharisaical religion, you had. The Takanot, you had the Mitzvot, you had the the, so you had the traditions and the commandments and commandments that started off as traditions of men, and the uh, the Pharisees claimed for themselves the um, these to be you know they were the sole authorities. These uh, Pharisaical rabbis were the sole authorities on earth to interpret the Written Torah. But now, all of that being said, when you kind of understand how all of this works, and I, I may be playing a lecture on this in an upcoming episode of Fighting for the Faith to kind of flesh this all out, you know, systematically, if you would. But the idea is this, is that the way Satan operates over and again is that the written word of God is not sufficient. Nope. There's a second Word of God that that comes alongside the Word of God. Now, in different religions, it takes different forms, or different so-called Christianized religions, it takes different forms. In the Roman Catholic system, what they would say is, is that oh, listen, there was lots of other teachings than what got reported in the new Te- recorded in the New Testament, and so the true, full apostolic teaching was not just written, but there's an oral tradition that goes along with that. Oh, and by the way, the Pope, being the vicar of Christ, the visible uh, head of uh, Christianity on uh, on Earth, he's the sole authority on Earth to interpret Scripture. And so you're going, okay, that's interesting. So what do you got there? You got twin streams of so-called authority, right? You have the written word of God, and then you've got so-called oral tradition. It's very similar to what you get from the Pharisees who were talk about the written Torah and the oral Torah. Well, in many charismatic Pentecostal circles, what happens is you also have twin streams. Stream number one, written word of God. Stream number two: the Word of God as revealed to somebody directly, okay, direct revelation. And then you get into the mystics, and the mystics you have the written Word of God and mystical experience. Well, oh, and then you get into Mormonism. You've got the Bible, and the you know, insofar as it's correctly translated, and you got doctrine and covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, and the Book of Mormon, and the living prophet in Utah. And so you got this other stream of revelation. Always and again, what Satan does is get your focus off of the written word of God. Now you sit sitting there going, "Um, well, can't we trust that other stuff? No, you cannot trust it. And this is kind of the whole point of what Jesus was getting at in Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, you know, Jesus reproves, rebukes, and just decimates the entire religious system of the Pharisees and says... That they are guilty of releasing the commands of God and teaching as and teach as doctrines the commandments of men, thus repudiating the entire system of the so-called aura, oral Torah and its binding nature upon the consciences of human beings. It's there is no such thing. Over and again, what does Jesus point us to? The written word of God. And he even goes so far as to give a special miraculous dispensation to the apostles so that they would be able to correctly remember and teach everything that he had taught and commanded. So the idea is this when you set up a second stream of revelation, you have set up a false stream, a stream that cannot be trusted and ultimately causes you to release your grasp, your faith's grasp, on what God has said in his written word, and grasp onto mythologies, the teachings of men, and otherwise. So... Keep that in mind as we listen to today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I'll be actually uh, serving it up. You'll be listening. But uh, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We have a uh, Patricia King gang update. And uh, Reda McPherson is um, going to be talking to us about the orphan spirit. Uh, The orphan spirit. I have no idea what that is. But she's going to be telling us about the orphan spirit. And then I've got a... uh, Roman Catholic Church update. Uh, Ex Pope Benedict, that would be uh, uh, Pope Emeritus, uh, you know, Benedict, um, the, he, according to uh, Reuters, uh, he is claiming that God specifically told him to resign via a mystical experience. So we'll cover that little news story. And then we'll spend a, a, a large portion of hour number one today um, listening to. A recent sermon delivered by Brian Zond. Remember Brian Zond, the guy who taught that other gospel, the beautiful gospel or whatever he called it, uh, the gospel of chairs, t- complete false gospel? Well, uh, one of the things I've had a tough time doing is figuring out how to properly categorize Brian Zond. And I've decided to put him into the greater junk drawer known as the emergent church movement uh, with the understanding that in reality, what Brian Zond is trying to bring into evangelicalism is not exactly post-modernity, but something more akin to Eastern orthodoxy. But the practices that he's, that he's promoting in this part of the sermon that we'll be listening to is contemplative mysticism. And... Um, Let's just put it this way. Everything you need to know about contemplative mysticism, you're going to hear from Brian Zahn today. And he, even though he's an advocate and out there, you know, actively promoting the practice of contemplative mysticism and contemplative prayer, after hearing from his own mouth where it comes from, you'll have no um, doubt as to whether or not you should embrace it or completely repudiate it because, as you will see... It doesn't have its origin in the written word of God. So, and then in hour number two, we're going to go down to City of Life Church. I think that's the name of the church we'll be listening to a message today. And yeah, City of Life Church, I think they're down in Florida. And um, what we'll be listening to is a sermon called The Great Adventure, preached by the wife of their head pastor, who also happens to be a pastrix there, entitled The Great Adventure. The Great Adventure, and... Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it will be anything but a great adventure slogging through that thing. So, lots of ground to cover today. I strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. Of course, fuzzy bunny slippers do enhance your listener experience if you have the opportunity to grab a pair of those. We're going to just dive right into it, and uh, since we're doing a Patricia King gang update and Red McPherson is part of that gang, uh, well, we've got to do this. So, uh, have you ever heard of the orphan spirit? Well, if you have, you haven't read it in your Bible. (laughs) Yeah, um, here's Reda McPherson of the um, Patricia King gang um, to explain supposedly a direct revelation from the Holy Spirit regarding something called an orphan spirit. And she'll give you all the details. Um, Please note that none of this, none of what you're about to hear is actually found in the written Word of God but it exists in a so-called direct revelation Um yeah but I agree in the
1: wonderful name of Jesus Christ our Messiah
0: yeah no actually you don't you're hijacking his name and not really bringing forth what is revealed in the written Word of God but we continue
1: there's something very special that I want to talk today about and this is the orphan spirit you know an orphan spirit is something that not many people know about Many years ago.
0: Yeah, so l- listen to what she just said. And the orphan spirit is not something that a lot of people know about. Now, what, wh- why would you think that is? Hmm. Hang on, I'm, g- I'm putting my thinking cap on. There it is, okay. Ah, yes, now I'm thinking really deep thoughts with my thinking cap on. You know the reason why not a lot of people have ever heard of the orphan spirit? Yep. It's because the Bible nowhere, I mean, not even in the footnotes, you can't find it in the book of maps. Nowhere in scripture is the orphan spirit even mentioned, hinted at, or anything like that. So the reason why a lot of people don't know about this orphan spirit thing is because God didn't actually decide to reveal it in the written word of God. Therefore it Well, since this is coming from a second stream of so-called God's Word, you know, a second stream of God's Word, this would be direct revelation, we probably should reject this doctrine, don't you think? But we continue.
1: After our accident and Aldous starts, you know, writing and and telling what Holy Spirit is saying to him, one day he literally looked at me and he says, I see an orphan spirit in you, Mom. And I, I didn't know, I had no idea what he was saying to me.
0: So her child received from the Holy Spirit, the ability to see into his mother's soul and said, Mom, I see an orphan spirit.
1: Well, as the journey went on and on, because you all know we are on a journey, Jesus Christ, Yeshua, rescued us out of Egypt. He took us in the wilderness and then we are on this journey to the promised land. So in my wilderness time, it was the time where he really said to me, Mom, I saw this, I see this orphan spirit in you. Well, I was, I thought, I didn't know anything about it, so I thought it was something that he saw that I was from grade one in hostel and I finished high school in hostel. I studied and I went to hostel. So I thought, you know, maybe he see something like that. But it was more, he saw more than that. So today I can explain to you. Because I've been through that and because God healed my heart from the orphan spirit, I can speak to you about it.
0: Ah, So God healed your heart from the orphan spirit. Now that makes you an authority on the orphan spirit. But don't you think if God really wanted us to know about the orphan spirit that he actually would have inspired you know, Moses or one of the prophets or the apostles to... Tell us about the orphan spirit so that we would, you know, the all of Christianity throughout its entire 2000 year history thus far would have benefited from this teaching.
1: I know in my journey that we all go through stuff and as you've been through a thing, you get uh, the wound is not bleeding anymore and you you are uh, healed and there's a scar scar tissue that shows that you've been through it so you can testify about this and how it works
0: Ah, so you, you've got an orphan spirit shaped scar somewhere on your soul got it
1: uh, my other uh, the, the house that I come out I had a father he died and and he's now with Jesus Christ but in this time he struggled uh, as a father to to give us love unconditional love he struggled with forgiveness he struggled with with many things because he was so broken and you know this i think it's mr Edwards saying this thing which i really know it's true in life broken fathers break their children and broken children become broken fathers and so the same with mothers so today i want to speak a little bit about this orphan spirit and how does it work um,
0: yeah, please. How does it work now? N- notice something here. Um, when you have two streams of so-called revelation from God, whether it's oral tradition, whether it's um, you know doctrines of men, whether it's direct revelation from God or mystical experience, um, the emphasis on the written word of God greatly, greatly, greatly diminishes. In fact, the, the secondary stream. Always ends up taking the um, the primary role or the prime the prime seat the, you know the, the chief seat when it comes to revelation uh, from god isn 't that weird you know because um, we 're not learning anything from god 's word here it 's no no she 's had this experience with the orphan spirit and she knows because you know, she has an orphan spirit shaped scar on her soul um, and you know, she's now ha- she 's the authority to be able to speak on this we 're not going to actually spend any time in god 's word now, are we
1: an orphan spirit, I'm talking about your spirit. I'm not talking about a demon that I need to get out of you. An orphan spirit is, is the condition of your spirit. It's absolutely that feeling of I don't belong, I can't trust people, I always want to get um, be seen, be acknowledged, be the best, and this thing is taking over my life.
0: I see, uh-huh, right, um... Again, no passages. Just her speaking from her, you know, her experience and her orphan spirit-shaped scar.
1: An orphan spirit gives a sense of unworthiness. I'm never good enough. Everyone else is good enough, but not me. When people have an orphan spirit, it is like two legs. You'll see that all. They either operate this way or they operate in this leg. So one leg of an orphan spirit, you will find people have um, depression, eating disorders, anxiety. um,
0: So if you're suffering from depression, eating disorders, or anxiety, you may be suffering from an orphan spirit.
1: A taxon. Many, many different kinds of ways that they will not be able to to really give themselves in a relationship. They are always thinking, I'm not good enough. They also believe that the Father's heart, our Abba's heart, is not a safe haven for them. Why? They got hurt from their father's so they struggle to get into this place, and I call this place the Holy of Holies. And this is the place where our Abbas, our Father wants to take you in and just love you, nurture you.
0: So, so there's a place that you call the Holy of Holies that God wants to take us in and just love us and all that kind of stuff. Um, weird, because um where where does the bible talk about there there's some mystical place you know cuz this is what she's describing it's some kind of mystical experience that god wants to take us into the holy of holies and just love us and love on us and all this kind of stuff. it sounds a lot like the um practicing the presence of god or lectio divina or things like that you know these so-called mystical experience, places, things, you know, where all of a sudden this overwhelming sense of the the bubbly, effervescent, love, gooey thing takes over and you just go into the fetal position and, and start weeping and, you know, weird stuff like that. Um, nowhere in the Bible does it teach that experience either. Weird, huh?
1: Give you everything out of Egypt, through the wilderness, and then in the promised land. Many people with the orphan spirit stays in the outer court to the holy place, but they never ever enter in the holy of holies. So the fear, anxiety, insecurity. Fear, anxiety, insecurity. They're always insecure. You know, women will walk in at a conference, and and when we speak about this topic, they will come to me afterwards and say things like, you know, when I looked at you, I felt... Um, maybe i'm not good enough maybe i i don't hear god's voice like you do maybe you see it's all lies it's all that the this this condition of your heart this orphan spirit of your heart is saying to you you will never get there you will never have that you will not you are not good enough that is out of pain
0: ah if only joel osteen knew this because the, the sy- symptoms she's describing you know those feelings of inadequacy and feeling i'll never measure up and all that kind of stuff joel osteen just tells us to Make sure to say positive things, otherwise, just be quiet. She's saying here we've got an orphan spirit thing that we've got to contend with. Again, weird. Um, where does all this come from? A second stream, supposedly, of the Word of God. Not the written Word of God, but uh, what she's experienced in this, y'all, you know, well, all that kind of stuff. Weird, isn't it? Which then leads us to the next segment. We've got to do this, though. <laughs> That's right, it's time for a Roman Catholic Church update. From the Reuters News Service, headline reads, Ex-Pope Benedict says God told me to resign. Yeah. (laughs) In Roman Catholicism, there's more than one stream of revelation. You've got oral tradition, the Pope receiving direct revelations from God, mystical experiences by monks, you know, things of that nature. Um, all of these really amount to the teachings of the doctrines of men, and probably demons as well, um, rather than trusting in the written word of God. But uh, let's go ahead and kill this music here. The Reuters report from Vatican City. Former Pope Benedict has said that he resigned after, quote, God told me to during what he called a, quote, mystical experience, unquote. A Catholic news agency has reported, Benedict, whose formal formal title now is Pope Emeritus, uh, announced his shock resignation on February 11th, and on February 28th became the first pontiff to step down in 600 years. Quote, God told me to do it. The Zenith agency quoted Benedict as saying to a visitor, to the convent in the Vatican gardens where he is living out his retirement in near isolation. According to the agency, Benedict told his visitor, who asked to remain anonymous, that God did not speak to him in a vision, but in what the former pope called a mystical experience. According to Italian media, Benedict's decision to step down was influenced by the various scandals that blighted his eight-year papacy, including the arrest of his personal butler, for leaking private documents alleging, alleging corruption within the Vatican. He was succeeded by Pope Francis, the former Cardinal Jose Mario Bergoglio of Argentina, who was elected the first non-European pontiff in 1,300 years. According to the Rome-based Zenith, Benedict told his visitor that the more he observes the way Francis carries out his papal duties, the more he realized the choice was what was wanted by God. So there you go. Um. So, you know, God told him to do it, you know, and how many times have you heard uh, from all kinds of, you know, really important so-called religious leaders with all kinds of different doctrines that uh, they're hearing directly from God? Why should I believe that Pope Benedict, um, who holds an office not an instituted in Scripture anywhere, is actually kind of forbidden by Scripture, um, is uh, is actually hearing directly from God in mystical experiences or otherwise? Uh, reality is, is that there's no reason on earth I should believe it. But there you go. Second stream, if you would. You know, you got twin revelation. You got the Word of God and mystical experiences, plus, uh, you know, He's supposedly able to speak ex cathedra and things like that. And again, over and again, when you have these secondary sources of the so called Word of God, they end up trumping what the written Word of God says. Like, you know, as surely as night follows day. Strange, isn't it? Well, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Um, everything you've ever needed to know about contemplative prayer and why you shouldn't be practicing it, as taught by Brian Zahn. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Because all the letters of the Bible are red letters, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
2: You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
3: Python's Flying Circus Church.
0: Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. USA. And side outside? But since
2: Hello, I'm Brandon House of WorldViewRadio.com. WorldViewRadio.com is the world's premier biblical worldview online radio network. And now you can take it with you on the go with our free app that you can download free of charge at WorldViewWeekend.com forward slash APP. That's WorldViewWeekend.com forward slash APP. And you'll hear the daily and weekly radio programs by people like T.A. McMahon of The Brian Call, Chris Rosebro of Fighting for the Faith, Usama Dakdok and The Truth About Islam, Noise of Thunder with Chris Pinto, Justin Peters in the Justin Peters program, Crosstalk, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung in Prophecy Today, Jesse Johnson with the Bible Teaching program of Emmanuel, Dr. John Whitcomb, and Mike Gendron of Proclaiming the Gospel Radio, as well as Carl Tycrib with Forcing Change Radio. All of these biblically based radio programs are available free of charge at WorldviewRadio.com and through our free app at WorldviewWeekend.com forward slash app. Biblical Worldview Radio that you can take with you on the go.
0: Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially when you realize that those so-called mystical experiences aren't actually mystical experiences of God or the Holy Spirit. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll find our two friendly yellow buttons, one says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute and partner with us with, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to post office box 508 508- Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038, and let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we're doing here without it. Moving along. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Doug Padgett. Now, sitting in today, French horns, is um, Brian Zond. Word of life out in uh, Missouri. His special, unique contribution is... uh, strain of Eastern Orthodoxy that he brings to the entire emergent ethos this is just spectacular stuff here listen in simply just <clears throat> causes me to have tears every time i hear it. Okay, what you're about to hear is a re- part a portion of a portion of a recent sermon delivered by Brian Zond. This is uh, the guy who's really good friends with uh, the Renovatus guy and who preached that false gospel over at uh, Renovatus uh, not too long ago that we reviewed here. And he teaches at a church called Word of Life and it's out in Missouri somewhere. But uh, his recent sermon uh, was entitled Contemplative Breakthrough. Now, um, well, let's just unpack this, uh, put it this way. Well, I'll put it in the form of a question. Where in Scripture is contemplative prayer taught? It says, Where it says in Scripture, thus saith the Lord, if you want to pray contemplatively, step one is this, step two is that, step three is this, and step four is that. There is no passage that says that. In fact, nowhere in Scripture does it teach contemplative prayer or contemplative mysticism. But what you're going to hear from Brian Zond is him engaging in biblical twisting, because there is an example of the one of the apostles, the Apostle Peter, in Acts chapter 10, having a an ecstasis, you know, a, a, an experience where he did hear directly from God, you know, re- revelation from God pertaining to the fact that the uh, that the Gentiles were not to be considered unclean but included in the church. And uh, so he points to this text, which, by the way, is a historical narrative, and he tacks on his own theology to it. But, uh, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to listen to portions of this so-called sermon on contemplative prayer. And like I said, even though he's promoting contemplative prayer, you're going to hear everything that you need to know about the practice in order to come to the conclusion that you ought not be doing it, even though he's affirming that you should be doing it. Yeah, well, I'll let him explain it as we go. So here's uh, Brian Zahn's opening to this contemplative breakthrough sermon. And uh, listen to how he describes us and what the benefits are to contemplative prayer. Here we go. Tonight
4: I want to talk to you about contemplative prayer, which may but probably is not a term very familiar to you. There is a breakthrough that can occur as a result of the practice of contemplative prayer. There is a break. Now listen to what he said. There's a breakthrough because of the
0: you know, that's available to you through the practice of contemplative prayer. Where does the scripture talk about this breakthrough that's available to you in contemplative prayer? Answer nowhere. It doesn't actually teach it. He's inserting these ideas into a historical narrative text that doesn't actually address this topic. Okay? This is a form of eisegesis.
4: Breakthrough. There are breakthroughs. That can happen. Very significant, important life-altering breakthroughs that can occur as the result of the practice of contemplative prayer. I'm convinced that there are breakthroughs in perspective that can, in fact, occur no other way.
0: Mm, So he's convinced of this, that there's breakthroughs in perspective That are available no other way than through contemplative prayer, a practice nowhere taught in Scripture, which Brian Zahn, ironically enough, will affirm shortly here in a minute.
4: No other way. And either we gain breakthroughs in perspective, which I think is probably only possible through contemplative prayer. Or we will forever look at the world the same way. Which, oh, no. Which is to say we will never change.
0: A gasp. So you're, you're never going to progress in true Christian sanctification is what he's saying unless you take up this practice of contemplative prayer.
4: And that is not the goal of the Christian life, to never change. As Christians, we are to be in the process of ongoing conversion. Your initial conversion to Jesus Christ, well, that was a fine start. Uh, what?
0: <laughs> Worth playing that again. Listen again. I don't know what he's talking about here. This sounds like some kind of salvation by works scheme.
4: Your initial conversion to Jesus Christ, well, that was a fine start. Ah, that was a great start, but uh,
0: it's not enough. You've got to get busy with this contemplative prayer and mysticism stuff.
4: Let's stay at it. And there are kinds of conversions that will only occur through a change of perspective, and there are changes in perspective that can only occur through the practice of contemplative prayer. Ah, okay. Well, if this is true, okay, that there are changes in perspective that are
0: only available through contemplative prayer, why are there no passages in the Bible that say that? Hmm, strange, isn't it?
4: I'm going to lay the foundation in Scripture. I'm going to read several passages out of Acts chapter 10 and 11. In some ways, I would like to read almost these entire two chapters, but that would take too much time, and I would lose your attention, I'm pretty sure, if I did that.
0: Yeah, no, no point in reading large swaths of Scripture during a church service. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense nowadays, does it?
4: So I'm going to just read selected passages, but pay close attention as you follow along, either by listening and/or by seeing the scripture on the screens. I'm beginning in Acts chapter 10.
0: Now I'm not going to have him read the passage for us. I'm going to read it ourselves. I'm going to read it myself to you. And uh, let's not do any selecting. Let's just make sure we understand the context of what's going on here. Acts chapter 10. We'll start at verse one. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So we have a Gentile centurion who is in the what it's called the he's a God fearer, okay, which means he's studying Judaism, studying to become a Jew, but hasn't become a Jew Uh, because he hasn't yet been circumcised. So he's still a Gentile, and he's in the God-fearing category, if you would. He's experiencing uh, catechism into the Jewish faith. Now, about the ninth hour of the day, okay, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now notice here, in this this narrative we have the first vision now these visions should sound similar to the types of visions we've seen the prophets have in the old testament the same type of vision uh, that other you know old testament writers themselves have had it's very similar to that so what's happening is is that this is a true direct revelation from god and there's a specific purpose for this revelation is as well here because up to this point in christian history uh Christianity has remained a Jewish affair you know preaching the, uh that Christ is the Messiah to Jews Gentiles have not been included into the church up to this point that's a key point next verse chap uh chapter 10 verse 9 so the next day as they were journeying and approaching the city Peter went up on the housetop about the 6th hour to pray and he became hungry And wanting something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, or he had an ecstasis, an ecstatic religious experience, mystical experience if you would. Now, as you're reading this, note something here, something that's missing in all of this. Nowhere in this text does it say, and here's the practice that Peter was engaging in, that he was practicing in contemplative prayer or Cornelius was engaging in contemplative prayer or mysticism or some kind of spiritual practice, you know, doing the Lectio Divina or practicing the presence of God or, or, you know, any of that kind of stuff. No, it just says that while they were praying and and as they're praying, something occurred to them, something happened to them because they were receiving direct revelation from God. And so it's being, it's descriptive here. It's not Prescriptive, and that's the important part. You're getting a description of what occurred, not a prescription that you're supposed to follow. And so, when somebody takes a narrative text like this, that's descriptive, and turns it into a prescription, well, <clears throat> we're running into problems. So, let me read verse nine again. The next day, as they were on their on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, notice he expects a meaning here. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. Now, this is important. There's an important sentence here. Okay. Peter, verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, notice that while he experienced this vision, he had no clue what it meant. It was... A riddle at this point. He had no breakthrough during his ecstasis, okay? That's important in this, as uh, you'll find out as we—well, you'll find out the reason why it's important as we listen to Brian Zahn, but let me continue. Now, having made inquiry for Simon's house, uh, Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him—notice he's still pondering the vision— Behold three men are lo- uh, the spirit said to him behold three men are looking for you rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation so the holy spirit immediately tells him hey there's people looking for you go with them Okay, so he's got this vision, he has no clue what it means, he hasn't had a a contemplative breakthrough, he's still perplexed as to what any of this means, and then God, the Holy Spirit, specifically says to him, you go with those guys, and he still doesn't know what the vision means, okay, and Peter went down to the men and said... "...I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming?" And they said, "...Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well-spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests." The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him, and the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit any one of another nation but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean so when I was sent for I came without objection I asked then why you sent for me Cornelius said Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and he said, "'Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, "'but in every nation, anyone who fears him "'and does what is right is acceptable to him. "'As for the word that he sent to Israel "'preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ,' He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem." They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead to him. All the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, I don't need to go on at this point, because the so-called ecstatic experience, okay, when we've read this text, again, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. And saying that he was in he was practicing contemplative prayer or contemplative mysticism, flat out, that's eisegesis. Eisegesis, by the way, if you're not familiar with the term... Ice means into. So what uh, eisegesis means to read something into a text that is not there. Somebody who's rightly handling God's word doesn't engage in eisegesis and sticking things into the text. Instead, they engage in what's called exegesis, to read out of the text what God has put there. So with that text now you know fresh in your mind, let's listen to Brian Zahn and his explanation of how this text supposedly prescribes contemplative prayer. He does this in a very slippery fan, uh, manner. So here's uh, Brian Zahn picking up with trying to explain to us what was going on in this text.
4: And Peter was praying the hours. Peter had a Jewish liturgy, and he had certain prayers that he would pray at certain hours. And at noon, it was time for his noon hour of prayer, his, the prayers for the noon hour. And so he's, he's gone up onto the rooftop, to pray the hours, to pray the noontime liturgy, to pray the prayers that were appointed for that time for Jewish people to pray. And while he's in prayer, going going down the track, going down the liturgy, praying the the appropriate psalms and prayers, he goes into what he calls a trance. An ecstasis, where we get our word ecstasy. I'll talk about that word in a little bit. But he goes into an ecstasis or a trance. And in his trance, he has a vision. And in his vision, he sees a great sheet let down from the heavens by the four corners. And in the sheet are all kinds of animals. That is, unclean animals. Animals that, according to the Jewish Torah, are not kosher to eat. So he is seeing what? Pigs. Lobster. Shrimp. Ostrich. That would be another one. And there's a whole long list of unkosher, unclean, not fit for a Jew to eat animals. The voice comes from heaven and says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, by no means, absolutely not. This must be some kind of weird test. But nothing unclean has ever entered my mouth. I'm not about to start now. No, no, no. But then the voice spoke a second time and said, essentially, this is a translation, a paraphrase, An interpretation, but essentially the voice said, stop thinking of other people as unclean, as unkosher. Stop thinking about Gentiles as they're unclean, they're unacceptable. Stop thinking that way. And Peter had a profound change in perspective. It's a hugely dramatic moment, not only in the life of Peter. Now, 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 remember, the text makes it clear that after he had this
0: ecstatic experience, he was perplexed as to its meaning. He still didn't understand after he had it. So the breakthrough didn't occur while he was, quote, in contemplative prayer because he wasn't engaging in contemplative prayer. This was a direct revelation and vision from God. So Brian Zond here is very subtly tweaking the narrative in order to prescribe the practice of contemplative mysticism. But let's, let's listen a little bit more.
4: Not only in the life of the church, but in really the whole course of human history. Because Peter has had this sudden shift in perspective that we will talk about.
0: Okay, so this is going to change everything because he's had this sudden shift in perspective. It's it's because of a direct revelation from God. But we continue, I'll fast forward a little bit to where Peter defends his actions, and this is where the theology is critical that you listen to as well as the source of contemplative prayer um, as Brian Zond explains it. Peter defends his action by
4: telling them about the breakthrough in perspective that he experienced in prayer. Uh, Yeah, uh,
0: Peter, again, when you read the narrative, he didn't have a breakthrough in perspective while in prayer. He had a direct revelation, and after he came out of that experience, he still had no clue what it meant. He didn't understand its meaning until he gets to Cornelius' house.
4: And it's very important to understand that when Peter tells his story, he always emphasizes that I was in prayer and this thing happened. When Peter, or what Peter experienced on that rooftop in Joppa is what we mean by contemplative prayer. So there you go. That's him. That's Brian's.
0: That's what we mean. Whoever all these people are that practice contemplative prayer. It's that ecstatic experience of having a mystical experience. That's contemplative prayer. Um, No, that's a direct revelation from God. That's not a practice that Peter was engaging in or some kind of formula that you and I can engage in. See the problem? We continue though. This
4: is what we mean by contemplative prayer. This is a rather uh, dramatic example of it, but it's what we mean. I began a practice in prayer about five years ago.
0: Okay, now this is Zahn telling us his story. He began this practice of prayer five years ago. Where did he learn to do this from?
4: In my own life, my own, you know, personal discipline of prayer. I began a thing that I later came to realize is what the mystics, the monks, the holy men and holy women from as far back as the third century, the desert fathers and mothers, it's what they called contemplative prayer now stop <clears throat> let's put this on a timeline okay the apostle peter
0: in the book of acts is first century the desert fathers that he's referring to are third and fourth century how many hundreds of years times is there a difference between them between 3 and 400 years time spans peter and the desert quote desert fathers these mystic monks right, um, which tells you something. This practice doesn't go back to the apostles. It doesn't go back to the early to the early church. This was an innovation by mystical monks whose brains were fried out in the desert. Okay, um, this this is not a practice taught in scripture. Let me back this up. Listen again to what he's saying here. So this is not apostolic. This
4: is something different. The monks, the holy men and holy women from as far back as the third century, the desert fathers and mothers, it's what they called contemplative prayer. I discovered it entirely on my own. Just... Okay, listen again to this. He didn't
0: discover it in the Bible. Where did he discover it? It's not, nowhere in scripture is this prescribed. Here's where he learned it. Listen again.
4: I discovered it entirely on my own, just through my own groping, practice, trial and error. Uh, uh, So, wait a second. Listen again. Not from the Bible. Where did he learn it from? I discovered it entirely on my own, just through my own groping practice trial and error.
0: So you learned it from trial and error, groping around in the dark all on your own. Don't you think that if God wanted us to practice contemplative prayer, that he wouldn't leave us groping in the dark, having to learn it by trial and error all on our own? Wouldn't he have taught us this? Yet when the disciples come to Jesus... And say, Lord, teach us to pray. Jesus obliges. And Jesus is God in human flesh. And you know what Jesus says? He says, when you pray, say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So Jesus, when asked about prayer and teaching us how to pray, he prescribed a prayer, a prayer that engages your brain and has you say, say things. Okay. Where did Brian Zond learn contemplative prayer? Well, again, uh, not to be redundant here, Brian Zahn learned this not in scripture. He didn't learn it from Jesus. Jesus never taught it to the
4: apostles. This is where Brian Zahn learned it. I discovered it entirely on my own, just through my own groping, practice, trial and error. Uh, I I began a practice that later I learned there's a name for what I was doing. I didn't, I just thought. So you finally learned there's a name for it. Wow, that's great.
0: As you were groping around in the dark. Are you sure why you were groping around in the dark you didn't grab onto the tail of a demon?
4: I thought it was a thing I was doing. But I learned that, oh, no, 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 no. People have been doing this for almost 2,000 years.
0: Yeah, almost, but not. Huh? It's not apostolic. It's old. But it doesn't go back to the New Testament, not to Jesus and the disciples.
4: And I learned the name for it. The name of it is contemplation or contemplative prayer. I would have simply called it sitting with Jesus and looking at something.
0: Sitting with Jesus and looking at something.
4: What? That's, to me, that's what it was. That's what I was doing. I was learning how to sit with Jesus and look at something.
0: And where in the scripture does it say you can sit with Jesus while looking at something? This doesn't even make any sense.
4: I have my, that I've developed over about a five-year period of time, my morning liturgy of prayer.
0: Oh, you've developed this. Got it.
4: It's these tracks of prayer that I go down every day. My morning liturgy of prayer. And then right in the middle, after a time of petition and intercession, there's a time that I now call it contemplation, but I used to just think of it as sitting with Jesus looking at something. By the way, I'll be teaching my prayer class again in September. It's going to be five sessions. It'll be when five
0: sessions. I mean, Jesus, I mean, knock this down pretty darn quick, just in like a few verses. You're gonna take five sessions
4: Wednesdays at seven thirty in the morning, 45 minutes long, the four Wednesdays in September, and then the first Wednesday in October that's coming up. But contemplative prayer Is prayer without agenda and largely without words? What? Let me play that again. It's what? Is prayer without agenda and largely
0: without words? Prayer without agenda and without words. And how is that prayer then if you just sit quietly without words? What are you talking about? How is that prayer? Jesus said when you pray, say.
4: In contemplative prayer, what I do is I simply, having come into the presence of the Lord, and I'm I'm confident that I'm actually in the presence of Jesus.
0: What makes you so confident that you're in the presence of Jesus and not Lucifer?
4: I will sit with some issue, some problem, some matter. That thing, Jesus and me, sit there together.
0: Ah, so you just sit there quietly together with that thing. So Jesus becomes kind of like a Buddhist monk. I mean, this sounds like, you know, something I've seen in that movie. Well, not the movie, the old television show Kung Fu. You know, you got the blind Buddhist monk guy and... You know, he's sitting there quietly in the lotus position and you got the incense smoke swirling around him and stuff like that. And in comes uh, the young Padawan learner. I know I'm mixing metaphors here. And, you know, he comes and can't get his attention. And so he learns by example to just come in and sit down and assume the lotus position and sit there quietly with his master. Uh Uh-huh. This
4: doesn't sound at all like Jesus. This is not thinking about it. It's not what that is. If you're you're hearing me say, oh, you're you're thinking about it. It's not thinking about it. This is sitting with Jesus in the presence of the thing. Yeah,
0: sitting with Jesus in the presence of the thing. I don't even know what that word, that sentence means or
4: the cash value of it. But we continue. When we, as human beings, feel hurt, threatened angered by a person or people or some situation, we instinctively view it from the perspective of self-defense. That is, through the sights of our gun. We're having a problem with somebody at work. We're having a problem with somebody in our family, perhaps. We're having a problem with some group of people. We feel hurt by them. We feel threatened by them. We feel angry toward them. And that causes us to be defensive. And so we only look at them through one perspective. It is the perspective of self-defense. I describe it as looking at people through the sights of your guns. That's just one perspective. I'm going to borrow Eric's little stool here. Excuse me, Pastor Pelle. And so, you know, maybe, uh, maybe, uh, maybe I get somebody. Uh, yeah, probably not. So uh, I've been in prayer. I've been praying through my liturgy. I've been on the track of prayer for about, who knows, 15, 20 minutes by now. And I'm aware that something has come up this week. Someone has angered me or someone has caused me to feel hurt or someone has done something that I feel threatened by and so I'm I'm afraid or whatever. Or it could be a group or it could be be a political matter. It could be a theological matter. And I just let that thing sit in the room with Jesus in me. I just look at it that's all i do
0: you just look at it huh okay
4: i don't ask jesus about it i don't tr- so you don't ask jesus anything about it you just it
0: just sits there in the room between the two of you okay I don't try to get jesus to talk about it so jesus is you don't want him talking about it just just to look at it and just be there with it
4: i'm not quote praying about it per
0: se that would take you you know using words in your mind and you're claiming this is wordless prayer It's weird that the Bible nowhere talks about wordless prayer, huh?
4: I'm just looking at it. And early on, if I've been hurt or angered, that's how I see it. Because there's self defense. And that may be that. That day, there may be nothing that changes.
0: Right, because you don't want Jesus talking about it, God.
4: That may go on for days on end or weeks even.
0: Sounds like a great use of time, yeah.
4: You can't make Jesus talk. If you've got a chatty Cathy Jesus, that's not Jesus, that's just you.
0: Ah, okay. So if Jesus is like a quiet Buddhist monk who can sit peacefully in the room with whatever's bothering you but not talk about it, um, well, that's Jesus then, you know, in the lotus position.
4: That's just you, that's just your brain just running and you're thinking, oh, that's Jesus talking to me, that's Jesus talking to me. Jesus is, he doesn't talk a whole lot. He talks, but not a lot.
0: Yeah, he he, he doesn't like to talk a lot. He just likes sitting there with it.
4: But what happens generally is Jesus doesn't really say much to me, but as I, it's, I have to kind of act it out, This is, it's hard to describe these spiritual things, it's as if Jesus will just Maybe take me by the elbow and move me around over here. Huh. That's a whole different perspective.
0: And there you go. You, you Jesus just moves you, and so you have a different perspective of the thing in the room that they're not talking about. And kablamo, you've had a contemplative breakthrough, a change in perspective that can only happen through contemplative prayer, which Brian Zahn learned... Um, all on his own, um, by trial and error, groping around in the dark. This isn't Christian prayer. This is not the type of prayer taught in God's Word. This is, well, it has its source outside of the Word of God and teaches you to not listen to the real Jesus, but sit there quietly with a false Jesus who really doesn't talk much. Yeah, I have no idea what the benefit of that particular Jesus is. I prefer the real one myself, and I prefer to pray the way Jesus taught me to pray. So after listening to Brian Zahn describing uh, contemplative prayer and its source and its origin, and again, he was doing this to convince everybody this is something they need to do, but after listening to him and listening carefully to where he said he got this from, I don't think it's anything any Christian should be doing. It's nowhere taught in Scripture and it's the exact opposite of the exact kind of prayer that Jesus taught his disciples and us to pray. Think about it. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break, we got a sermon review coming up from a female pastor at a secret driven church about a great adventure. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. When he asked Peter, who do you say that I am, Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs, and we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional ten dollars off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit PirateChristianRadio.com forward slash Cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga.
2: come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of pico Pond with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it.
0: Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. So what happens when um, a church doesn't abide by God's word that makes it clear that pastors are to be men, not women? What kind of sermons can you expect from women? Well, probably ones that don't rightly handle God's word and put us into a different stream of revelation. Maybe that stream of revelation can be uh, like personal experience. Listen in. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via City of Life Church in Kissimmee, Florida. Pastrix Amy Smith presiding. The name of said sermon is entitled The Great Adventure. listen carefully to what constitutes an authoritative word from God. Will it be the clear written word of God, rightly exegeted? Or will it be something else? Trust me, it'll probably be something else. See, that second source of revelation from the word of God, it can be church tradition, oral tradition, it can be so called direct revelation and mystical experiences, it can also be life experiences. Yeah, that's unfortunately how that plays out. So let me go ahead and kill the music here. And without any further ado, here is Pastrix Amy Smith, City of Life Church, Kissimmee, Florida, and her sermon entitled The Great Adventure. Here we go.
5: So yesterday was kind of a big day for me. Yeah, some of you have Facebook. Okay, so it's a pretty monumental day for me. It was my birthday. However, I'm not going to tell you how old I turned. I will just let you know it's a significant number. It was not 40. It was a significant number. Let me tell you a little bit of the significance. I turned the age that Jesus was When his mission on this earth came to completion.
0: Now, notice something. She's not actually preaching about Jesus. She's preaching about herself.
5: If you don't know that, don't Google it right now. (laughs) Look at it later. But it's a significant year. And it kind of made me reflect just a little bit. It made me analyze my life just a little bit. I thought, wow in the short amount of time that I've been living, because it's only been a brief moment in history, in the short amount of time that I've been living, everything that God needed Jesus to accomplish came to completion in that amount of time. That's really challenging. That this year represents the year that Jesus gave his life for us. And I thought, wow, That's such a big deal. Rather than having any kind of regret, rather than looking back at the brief amount of time I've been alive and feeling like I haven't accomplished much, I allowed myself to kind of be a little bit nostalgic and allowed myself to do a little introspection. And I thought, wow, I have come through so much. Wow. These short years, God has done so much in my life. In this short amount of time, wow, God, you brought me through a childhood of abuse. You brought me through the pain of depression. You brought me through trials and tribulations that were way beyond what I could have handled on my own. I've also accomplished many things. I have three beautiful children. So much to be thankful for. I have a husband that's amazing and loves me and cherishes me. And we have a very healthy marriage. And I I just started thinking like, wow, God, what a life you've given me. How could I ever be ashamed of my age? Even though I'm not going to tell you, how could I ever be at a place in my life where I feel like there's not enough time? I've already done so much. I'm not done yet. I'm just saying, If you reflect and you think on what he's really brought you through, you realize what an adventure this life is that we get to live for God. That is what I want to inspire you with today. This life should be an adventure
0: with... Uh, There's a should right there. Oh, this is what she wants to inspire me with, that this life should be an adventure um, what's wrong with doing what um, Scripture says? Work quietly with my hands, earn a living—you know, stuff like that. Read Thessalonians.
5: With God, this life should be the great adventure.
0: Uh, what passage of Scripture says this life should be the great adventure? I'm not familiar with that passage.
5: I did tell you I was being a little bit nostalgic, so I thought back to seventh grade. Stephen Curtis Chapman was the man. And if you'll just have fun with me with my title, The Great Adventure, have you ever heard that song? Saddle up your horses. No? Okay, thank you. First service was like, meh. I was like, only me and Pastor Justin were singing, I'm like, church kids, woo. Okay, y'all, Stephen Curtis Chapman was my man. Seventh grade, The Great Adventure, was my jam. I loved that song. I took the liberty of looking up the lyrics for those of you who have never heard that amazing tune. Let me tell you what it says. Just a little bit. Just a sneak peek.
0: Isn't this like what junior high and high school girls do? You know, they get up and say, Oh, I want to share with you this song that I just love. It's the best thing ever. And then, you know... "Eh, eh." Um, the job of a pastor is to preach the word. This is weird.
5: To the brilliance that is Stephen Curtis Chapman. If it'll load. It's not loading. Okay. Saddle up your horses. I'm not mocking this. Just want you to know. I really love this song. Started out this morning in the usual way. Chasing thoughts inside my head of all I had to do today. Another time around the circle, just trying to make it better than the last. I opened up the Bible, and I read about me. Said I'd been a prisoner, and God's grace had set me free. And somewhere between the pages, hit me like lightning bolt. Okay, I saw a big frontier in front of me, and I heard somebody say, let's go. Saddle up your horses. We've got a trail to blaze through the wild blue yonder of God's amazing grace. Let's follow our leader into the glorious unknown. This is a life like no other. This is the great adventure. Someone else has a ringtone. This is the great adventure. I love the picture that that song creates in my mind. This should be an adventurous life that we have in God. This should be what he's talking about.
0: Just because you like the Stephen Curtis Chapman song and lyrics, now you're saying that that my life has to be adventurous. Yeah, no.
5: This is the great adventure. In fact, if you are not walking with the Lord, you're actually the ones missing out. And not the other way around. See, the enemy tries to convince you that once you became a Christian, then you became kind of lame. Because you didn't party like you used to. You can't do the things you used to. You can't be the person you used to be. Everything now has to change and become kind of chilled and mundane. But in fact, it's the opposite. This life in Christ should be the most adventurous thing you've ever done. Every day thrilling every day thank god what do you have for me
0: Uh, and what if it's not am i in sin and you know am i not saved here you're telling me these things i ought to do it has to be this way and if it's not there's something wrong and yet you're basing this assertion on the lyrics from a stephen curtis chapman song yeah last time i checked he wasn't one of the apostles
5: god what's in store today I'm walking with you. I know that you have something more for me. I was just curious, how many of you would consider yourselves a thrill seeker? Like an adrenaline junkie. I've got all ages in this service. It was typically the younger crowd. I'm a thrill seeker within reason. Like sushi. Salmonella is a real threat. <laughs> Within reason, okay, living on the edge, living on the edge. California rules. Woo! I won't touch eel though. That's gross. A thrill seeker. I, I, not really too much. You know, one time I actually did the sky coaster at Old Town. Have you ever done that? Okay, I did it once. I think it was like eighteen wasn 't that long ago, so I remember it like it was yesterday I was
0: and now she 's telling us about a roller coaster experience in her life. Well, hmm can't wait to see what she does with the scripture when she finally gets around to it. Uh, let me read a passage of scripture First uh, Thessalonians chapter four, verse nine. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we have instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Well, that's weird. Scripture here says, yeah, aspire to live quietly and mind your own business. It doesn't say aspire to live an adventure or make sure... That uh, you're having an adventurous life here. Otherwise, you're doing something wrong. I mean, this sounds like the exact opposite of the great adventure. This sounds like the great, you know, serve your neighbor in your vocation kind of thing. Hmm.
5: 18, and I remember it was me, my husband at the time we weren't married, and a girlfriend of mine. And three people go up. And you know what it does, right? It, like, puts you in a harness. And it... Pulls you up 300 feet. In fact, Old Town is the tallest one in the world. You do not realize how tall 300 feet really is until you're up there. Guys, I was praying in tongues. I was repenting. I had involuntary tears pouring out of my eyes. I just knew that I had tempted God in some way, and this was my moment. And then they torture you and make you pull your own Like device that releases you and then you go like straight dropping and then you swoop out. It's insane. You know how usually like after you do something really crazy like that, you're like, oh my gosh, I would totally do it again. I will never (laughs) do that again. You couldn't pay me enough money. One of those hypothetical questions like for a million dollars, I'm like, heck no. No, that scared me so bad. So I'm a limited thrill seeker. But I do really love roller coasters. In fact, the other night, Mia and I, if I could get the timer figured out, it says I have minus 22 minutes.
0: I mean, this sounds like she's describing herself for one of those dating websites. Uh, Single white woman looking for adventurous man. I like strolls on the beaches. I like roller coasters and limited thrill-seeking. And I like Stephen Curtis Chapman songs. (laughs)
5: And I know they want to hear more. Right? Okay. Okay. Um I'll take all three claps. Um so Mia and I went on Space Mountain the other night. My husband was riding Blink. Grand Jane and I decided to take all three kids to Disney. We get a fast pass and we're going to ride Space Mountain. Just me and her and we're so excited. I've gone on that like 20 times you know, it's not that exciting, but this time was just a little bit different. This time, once we got all the way up there and it was our turn was next, all of a sudden, all the lights in what is a dark place all come on. And we're like, oh my goodness, what's happening? We did the same thing. Everyone's like, boo, really immature. Um, All the lights come on, and I see all the employees kind of scurrying around trying to figure out, like, and then this one girl standing next to me who's probably only worked there two weeks, she was like, oh, my gosh, I have never seen this happen before. I'm like, that is really comforting. Thank you. They're all on the phone with each other trying to figure out what's going on, you know, and the loudspeaker, they're like, please have patience with us while we figure out what is going on with our ride. Mickey loves you. Bye-bye. And, then, you know really comforting but we're standing there and I get like I don't know this ride I've gone on so many times all of a sudden I got like a little bit nervous like my hands got a little bit sweaty and my heart started pounding just a little bit and I'm like I hope everything's okay you know and then they're like oh it's all fixed now and then the lights go down and they're like bye-bye Mickey loves you and I get on the thing I'm like me up pull up here is it good it's good and I'm like pushing on it just like 20 times to make sure do you ride space mountain and you duck your head did you hear someone got decapitated? I don't know. I think it's an urban legend because I've actually never found it. But you all heard the same thing, right? At some point in your life. Guys, I'm 5'3". My head is not going to be decapitated. It's not going to happen to me first. It would happen to Dave Martin first. I'll ride with him. on.
0: And what on earth does this have to do with God's word, Christian doctrine, uh, what the scriptures actually teach? Um, so we've learned the important spiritual pra- um, uh, insights of a ride on Space Mountain and roller coasters and um, a Stephen Curtis Chapman song and whatever else this woman is speaking about stream of consciousness from her life. Okay.
5: On the ride. I don't know why you, like, duck your head. It feels like everything's going to, like, take your None of this is spiritual at this point, so I apologize. But this analogy will take us somewhere in a moment. So, of course, like there's the thrill of the anticipation before the ride. Then in the middle of the ride, you know, screaming and it's exciting and going really fast, and it's so fun, and then when you get off the ride, you're a little bit dizzy, and it's fun, because you're old, and you're it's fun, and me and Mia, she was like, oh my gosh, you we were making the funniest noises, and I was like, yeah, so are you, and then she's like, no, like, you really were making strange noises, so I was like, I was holding on, like, really tight, so it's just the fun and the thrill of it, did you know our life in Christ should be the exact same way, it should. Why?
0: Why should it be the exact same way as your experience on Space Mountain? I mean, why? Just because you had an experience? You're saying that my Christian life has to be the like your experience on Space Mountain. Hi-yi-yi. This is crazy.
5: It would be thrilling. If it's not, possibly you have gotten to the place in your relationship with the Lord where you have become complacent.
0: Uh Uh-huh. So if my Christian walk isn't like your Space Mountain roller coaster experience, and I'm apparently complacent, by, by what stretch of logic did you come to this conclusion?
4: Hmm?
5: Maybe you've gotten to the place where you've got it pretty much figured out. You've been on this ride before. You've done all of this before and it's not that exciting anymore. I've got it kind of figured out. And nothing thrills you. There's a scripture I want to read. Revelation 3:15 and 16. It says, "I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot."
0: Yeah, who's talking and who's talking to whom? Here. Yeah, Revelation chapter 3, verse 15. Is a well, it's not addressed specifically to you and I, it's specifically addressed to the church in Laodicea. And no, if we read Revelation chapter 3, you will find that the church at Laodicea was not suffering from a lack of a great adventure where their Christian life was just like Space Mountain. It's weird that I even have to say this. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, red letters, these are the words of Jesus, dictated to the Apostle John, to the angel in the church of Laodicea, write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing but not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Uh Aha. So what's happening in Laodicea? These are wealthy folks. They live in a resort town. A resort town with a Famous uh, pharmacy, if you would, that makes eye ointment. And then Jesus basically, oh, yeah, they have hot springs, by the way. not They're really not hot springs. They're kind of lukewarm springs there in uh, Laodicea. But, um, but Jesus says to them, you think you're rich, right? But you don't even realize that you're pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To the churches, so um, Revelation three fifteen and sixteen isn't about people who aren't having adventurous Christian lives. It's about people who are wealthy and complacent and don't love Christ and not realizing that they're naked. You know, uh, you, you, so what the text says it's pretty straightforward. But Pastor Amy, why waste a good proof text? You know, because, you know, she's already come to the conclusion that if your Christian life isn't the exciting adventure of going on Space Mountain, well, then you're doing something wrong and you're suffering from complacency. Again, I don't know how you jump that chasm of logic, but that's what she's done. And this verse supposedly proves it. But when you read it in context, it doesn't say anything of the sort.
5: I wish that you were cold or hot. This is God speaking. So because you are lukewarm... And neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is God saying, I don't have a taste for that. I don't like it. I won't deal with it. He is a loving God. But there are certain things that he is pretty clear about. He's saying, pick one. (laughs) Cold or hot. Lukewarm won't do. Lukewarm is half-hearted. Lukewarm is partially committed lukewarm is willing to only sacrifice just a little it's settling are you being half-hearted about your relationship with god are you lukewarm see lukewarm means that you've settled
0: Ah, uh, is that what that means okay Hmm. funny when i read the text in context i can't see that anywhere in the text Um, yeah, now she's browbeating everybody. This is, you know, well, if you've settled, well, then you're lukewarm. And and now she's going to take out her frying pan and just beat you over the head with it. Um, this is not biblical exegesis, nor is this proper handling of God's word. And what again is the standard? Oh, yeah. The fact that she had a great Mickey Mouse, um, you know, experience on Space Mountain.
5: See, God tells us there is so much more to explore, so much to learn about Him. There's uncharted territory in His presence. I don't know about you, but I want to explore that. I want to be a part. Oh,
0: I'm sure you do. Um, what passage again says this about the? We need to explore the uncharted things of yeah, nowhere in Bible. Weird.
5: Part of that adventure in Genesis 29. There's a story about Jacob and Rachel. And maybe you've heard... Gen-
0: Genesis 29 is a story about adventure?
4: What?
5: i heard this story before, but it's actually a really famous love story. It's beautiful because you find out that Jacob falls in love with a daughter of a man named Laban, and her name is Rachel. But Laban has two daughters. He has Leah, who is the oldest, and Rachel. You actually find out, and it's kind of pitiful, that Rachel's prettier than Leah. And a lot of people focus on that. They focus when they're telling the story that, wow, Jacob loved Rachel, but let's teach about the rejection of Leah. Or they focus on Laban, how Laban actually manipulates the situation and deceives Jacob, and they teach on that. But for the sake of this teaching, I want to give you a little bit of a different perspective but I want to give you the background. Jacob goes to Laban and says, what can I do to marry your daughter, Rachel? I love her. Tell me I'll do whatever. What do I have to do? And Laban says, if you want to marry Rachel, then work for me for seven years. Y'all, some people... Now,
0: notice that um, she's not actually reading the biblical text. Let's let's read it. I mean, it's not like we don't have anything better to do. I mean, it's, it's this is sermon time. Shouldn't we be reading scripture? You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> Genesis chapter 29. I'll start at verse 15. Jacob has already arrived in Haran and stayed with his uh, uncle Laban for a little bit. So then Laban said to Jacob, verse 15, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, "'Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed.' So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, "'What is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel?' Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. So Jacob did so and completed her week, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. So, at this point you know you, you got a a marriage week you know that that he fulfilled, and then at the end of that week, Rachel becomes Jacob's wife, and in return he's going to he's gonna work for seven more years for Laban okay, so he's now married to the two of them within a one week period that's what's happened so Jacob went into Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years, okay. Now, that's the story that um, Pastrix Amy is going to uh, try to tell us what this all means in, in the context of great adventure. Did you see any great adventures in there? Um, yeah, let's continue.
5: People don't even date for seven months. You cannot post that picture. I just made the ugliest face. Okay. Uh, It's a friend sitting on the front row, so I got a little distracted. Okay, so seven years. He's willing to do this. So Jacob works for seven years for Laban in order to have Rachel. Then the craziest thing happens. The night of his wedding, this has always confused me, but Laban tells Leah to put on a veil and disguise herself, and Jacob actually ends up marrying Leah. They must not have known each other very well, him and Rachel, because I would think a veil wouldn't hide that much, but he married the wrong daughter and we're going to read the Bible and take it at its word, right? So maybe she had the veil on her whole body. I'm not sure. Either way, he wakes up the next morning. He's like, what? This is not Rachel. Rachel. This is not the woman I was promised. This is not the woman I love. And he goes to Laban and says, wait a second here. You deceived me. I married the wrong daughter. He says, I still want Rachel. What do I have to do to get her? Laban says, okay, I gave you Leah. I gave you a wife, but you'll have to work seven more years. So we find out that Jacob loves Rachel enough that he works seven more years. That's a total of 14 years years before he can marry Rachel. Don't you kind of feel bad?
0: Yeah. Notice if she had just read the text, she wouldn't have made that error because, um, he gets to marry Rachel immediately and then work the seven years.
5: (sighs) For Jacob, I would totally feel bad for him if I were you. But what happens is that he finally gets to marry Rachel. But meanwhile, Leah, seven years in, was still his wife, because that was okay back then. And she had his children. And essentially, in that time, love really didn't factor into a marriage decision that much. Not like it does today. Really, people married back then.
0: Yet the text makes it clear that love definitely factored into Jacob's marriage to Rachel.
5: So that they could have a companion and that person could have their children and that their lineage would carry on their genealogy would continue and they would have a heritage. So basically Leah fit the bill. Leah was good enough, but Leah was settling for less.
0: Uh, Oh, what? (laughs) Um, which commentary did you get that from? Which biblical scholar, Old Testament scholar uh, on the book of Genesis was making the point about Leah settling for less? What? <laughs> what are you talking about?
5: It wasn't his true love. It wasn't who he wanted. And Jacob knew, wait a second. That's not what I want. That is not what God promised me I want the fulfillment of everything that God has for me and that was Rachel in your life have you settled for Leah?
0: <laughs> this isn't even a lucid biblical point I mean having read the text what do you mean to ask the question um have I settled for Leah in my life Huh?
5: Have you settled for something that's good enough? My needs are met. Me and God are good. It's good enough. I come to church once a month. I pay my dues. I do what I'm supposed to. I'm a good person. Have you settled? Is it just good enough? Or do you want what Rachel represents? Do you want more? Uh,
0: What does Rachel exactly represent again?
5: Do you want this adventurous life I'm talking about?
0: Ah, I see. Rachel represents an adventurous life. Which Bible commentator says that?
5: Do you want to be free of all of the things that hold you back? There's a cartoon that I think is really interesting. It's a comic strip, and it shows a little boy who is shooting a bow and arrow. And he aims it, and it hits a random place on the wall. And then he takes his marker and walks over to it and draws the circle around where the arrow is. Have you seen that before? And then it shows...
0: Is that cartoon in my Bible?
5: He goes back and does it again and then draws the circle around where the next one hits. And I thought, wow, what a clear picture of the way we live our lives that we're just aiming at anything, whatever we hit and we're like, yeah, that's a good target. Hit the bullseye. And you make adjustments depending on the season of your life for what you ultimately envision your life to be. Constantly making adjustments, constantly settling for less, In your relationship with God. I assure you there is more. See the enemy. Wants us. I want you to get this. The enemy wants us. To settle in the valley of the common.
0: No, that's just terrible. Oh, who knew that the devil was all about getting us to settle and live in the Valley of the Common. Oh, that just... Oh, man. How are we going to save all those people who are trapped in the Valley of the Common? I mean, this is absurd. I mean, are you just making stuff up, Amy? The
5: enemy wants us to make our home our dwelling place, our relationship with God, our relationship with our spouse in the valley of the common. But there's more. There's more. Could you look at the person next to you? Maybe they don't believe me yet, and you tell them. Say, there's more.
0: I can barely take what you've given me so far. It's such a litany of non-lucidity. I don't even know if I can handle even one more point.
5: You know, Jude, my little boy, he's eight. The other day he was playing a video game and he was trying to convince me to change the game. And he was, he said something that I thought was brilliant. I wrote it down and I was like, I'm totally using that in my sermon. He can use it in his own one day because he's going to be a preacher. But he said, mommy, an adventure is no fun if it's too easy. He's a genius. (laughs) He said, Mommy.
0: Yeah, you you may not want to be preaching from your kids' sound bites. Um, This is embarrassing. Good night.
5: An adventure is no fun if it's too easy. He felt like that game was not challenging his gamer skills, and it was too easy. See, God never told you it would be easy, but he did promise it would be an adventure if you would Allow your life to embark upon. Yeah,
0: I'm a little vague and fuzzy on the where God promised to make my life an adventure. Can you show me that passage in the Bible again? Because so far you haven't actually done that at all.
5: Everything that God has for you. I lived so much of my early 20s, which I may or may not be in. I lived so much of my life settling for less than in my emotional realm, in my relationships, and it seemed like I couldn't break free. But I didn't understand the fullness that God had for me. I did not have that longing in me for more in the way that I do now. Because once you get a glimpse of the freedom that there really is in the Lord, you're like, wait, wait, wait. I've tasted and I've seen That he's good. I might be in a trial right now, but he is fully good and he is everything that I need. See, the enemy in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were instructed only one thing by God stay away, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do you know what the enemy did with them? What he did is he came in, got them to look at this tree. And began to look at that and convince them to look at that and say, see, there are limitations on you. See, you don't get everything.
0: Uh, Yeah, um, you're just making stuff up at this point. Why don't you read the text for us?
5: See, your situation is limiting you. See, this trial is limiting you. And all the while, God is saying, look. At the abundance I have for you. Look at every other tree you could eat from. And the enemy had them so honed in on the one area that they felt like was a limitation. I don't know if you're getting this or not, but there was a longing that God had. He said, wait a second. Don't let him convince you. Who told you you were naked?
0: Did you, Have you even read Genesis 3? <laughs> Um, cause your retelling of the story, it, it's the, the timeline is completely off and there's like dialogue that you're inserting into this text that it's just not even there. It, I mean, if you're going to preach on a text, you might want to read it before you actually preach on it. And uh, not that you should be preaching at all, Amy. Um, <laughs> this is ridiculous. What is this?
5: Who told you that there wasn't fullness in me? Who told you that this life was boring if you're a Christian? Who told you? Uh, (laughs)
3: um,
0: Yeah, Satan wasn't there in the garden saying that the Christian life is boring. Oh,
5: man. That you have to deal with this depression for the rest of your life. Who told you you need a dang pill? (laughs) I said dang. I'm sorry. Woo! Woo! He wants, the enemy wants you to focus on your trial and your stress and not the abundance that God has for you. See, the catalyst for every great discovery was a longing for something that someone didn't have. Is there a longing in you for something you don't have in God?
0: Well, at the moment, I'm longing for like actual biblical truth because I'm not getting that from this sermon, that's for sure.:
5: I pray this teaching stirs you.:
0: Yeah, stirring me to anger, um, righteous anger at your mishandling of God's word.
5: to long again, to desire again. Don't you settle. There's so much more. Don't you settle. See, this life should be the great adventure. There's favor, there's blessing, there's abundance, there's meaning, there's comfort, there's joy. That's the adventurous life in Christ. See, if your relationship with God has become mundane, you may need a personal revival. You know what?
0: Uh, yeah. Wow. There we go. Yeah. If, if you're suffering from mundacity, you might need a personal revival. Uh-huh. Again, I don't know where she's getting any of this. I just just making stuff up in her head and then telling me what I got to do, even though the Bible doesn't say any of this. It's you know we're dealing with a different source of revelation here.
5: What a revival is. Think about someone who has been dead and their life has been brought back by some means of either a medical means or like CPR or those little things clear those things think about what it means (laughs) those things I'm not a nurse I'm sorry
0: but yeah it's called a defibrillator
5: to revive something is to breathe life back into it It was dead and it's supposed to be alive and it comes back alive. A personal revival is maybe something in you has been dead and it needs to come back to life. Everyone take a deep breath for just a second. Feels good, right? You serve the God who gifted you with that breath. You serve the God who saw fit to give you today. It's an adventure. And there's so much to discover in him. There's so much to learn about him. When is the last time you read your Bible and you're like, wow, God, I know you're going to show me something today. I know there's deeper revelation that you have for me today. Maybe today something could be revived in you. You know, I thought it was really interesting. I love history. And I was watching the History Channel recently. And it was this whole documentary and whole... um,
0: So we're going to get another spiritual lesson from a non-biblical source. This time from the History Channel. Okay.
5: Thing about Christopher Columbus. And he obviously sailed the ocean blue in 1492, <laughs> right? Did you know that? I just, history lesson, don't know anything about nursing, but I know a lot about history. But what I thought was...
0: Cue sappy music. That is a, um, an emotional manipulation technique to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now descended upon the auditorium and is ready to do business with people as... Apparently, in this case, God, the Holy Spirit, is showing up to help people to embrace adventure.
5: so intriguing to find out about Christopher Columbus is that at the age of 48, Christopher Columbus actually went blind. And it's documented and proven that one of the reasons that he went blind was because of overexposure to UV rays and sunlight. But what's so intriguing about this is that the way that he had to navigate the oceans is he had to look at the horizon in direct sunlight. He had to follow where the sun was. He had to look straight into its rays and keep squinting his eyes and saying, I know there's more. I just have this feeling there's something out there. I just have this feeling something's gotta be on the horizon. I just know it. I feel it. There's a longing in me. We've gotta find it. Keep going. We've gotta find it. Full steam ahead. Keep going. It cost him His physical sight. But it was worth it. He was right. There was more. Every voyage that he put his life at risk, he found more. And he found more. There's more today in the presence of God. There's more for you in your relationship with God. Do not settle for Leah.
0: Yeah, because... You know, you need to be inspired by the fact that Christopher Columbus went blind by selflessly looking into the horizon. So don't settle for Leah. (laughs) This doesn't make any sense.
5: Hold on to the fullness of what Rachel represents. Fullness in your walk with God. Fullness in this adventure that we get to live A lot in the Bible. He's most famous probably for his wife turning into a pillar of salt. But even after he was delivered, even after his family was saved, the Bible says that he settled in a land called Zor. The meaning of Zor is the place of little things.
0: it's more ridiculous by the second do i need to correct this or is are you all good we can just move on right
5: you might say pastor amy i mean i've been saved for a very long time i've preached sermons better than you
0: (laughs) i think my dog could preach a better sermon
5: i've prayed prayers that have stormed the gates of heaven and I'm a prayer warrior, and I'm very mature in my faith. And at a certain point, it's not settling, it's understanding. At a certain point, maturity brings about a just a consistency. I don't want to live that way. Lot was spared and brought out of a place. But then yet, even though he knew that God had something so big for him, he chose to settle In the place of little things. (laughs) Don't you settle.
0: Don't settle for the little things. Be like Christopher Columbus and don't settle for Leah.
5: A little bit of prayer. A little bit of church. A little bit of sacrifice. A little bit of commitment little bit of accountability This is good enough God is calling us deeper God is stirring our hearts today With a
0: yeah. I, I don't think so
5: renewed and revived longing for more
0: And that's thankfully the end of the sermon I mean What was that? Well, number one, that was not grounded in any biblical passage. That was a woman preaching from her own life as if God's speaking to us through her life and all these other sources as well. No, we need God's word to hear from God. And that only comes from hearing his voice right now in the written word of God. Someday face to face, but not now. Now we have the written word of God. The job of a pastor is to preach the Word, not their lives, not their mystical experiences, not oral traditions or things like that, the written Word of God. That's the thing we can trust. All the other stuff, it's utter nonsense, and that is not a way to learn about God to grow in your knowledge and understanding of Him, to grow in Christian sanctification, and then have God, the Holy Spirit, bear fruit in your life. That comes, that fruit only comes through the preaching and teaching of God's Word rightly taught. That is not what we got from Pastor Xamy. Far, far from it. I don't even think we got lucid thinking from her. But what did you think?